tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Hanky panky know-how. Having tea with Graham Greene. Kids with the clumsy eye. And 10 murdered oranges. Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Good night. This is this is Vinyl Tap. <laughs> Tonight, we will be looking at an avant-garde artist of true complexity. I am at the Vinegaroon Saloon. I am with... <laughs> Jonathan J.M. Rowe, our producer, who Good is evening. extremely humble. Good evening, Tapsters. Yes. <laughs> and we'll go back to normal. I'm sorry. Thank, Thank you. you. We were trying to do our uh, BBC. <clears throat> <laughs> and yet, <laughs> and yet we're here with Tony. Hey, Tony Jeff. Slagle. That's not Hegel. Uh, <laughs> Cheerio. <laughs> Tony is our. Uh, he is the encyclopedia of nonsense, rock and roll, <laughs> especially the volume, the P volume of the encyclopedia. <laughs> We're very excited tonight. As I said earlier, we are at the Vinegaroon Saloon, and we're doing an artist from a place called. <clears throat> Wales. Tony, can you tell me where Wales is? Are we talking about Pinocchio tonight? <laughs> no, Wales is... I uh, fell for that too, but I got a dictionary <laughs> off. Uh, Wales is a uh, part of the United Kingdom. It is uh, it is west of England and Scotland, uh, mo- mostly England, and south of... Uh, I think it was southeast, I guess, of Ireland. Does that sound right? Yeah, it's Ireland it's South. And so when you're talking about, are, are we talking about? Uh, We're talking about a very uh, Tom Jones? talented. Well, I don't like to talk about Tom Jones because my <laughs> grandmother said he was sexy. And that's gross when you're a little kid. He is Welsh, though. Yeah. He's very Welsh. That's a, I can't think of oh, Welshman. And, uh, you know. Uh, John Langford. My, my grandfather came from a Welsh family, but that's not very important. Maybe huh. it is. Um, anyway. We're talking about John Kale tonight, and uh, John Kale's an extraordinarily talented musician mm-hmm. who's probably most famous for being part of the world-famous band, the Velvet Underground. The band that nobody, very few people heard, but 
according to Brian Eno, everyone that heard them um, formed their own band. Gotcha. Yeah, they're one of those bands that just influenced the hell out of everybody, yeah. even though they sold very few albums. Yeah. And if you're young like we are, it's hard to hear the music. It's it's hard to hear their influence because everything after them was so heavily influenced by them. Yeah. I want to, uh, first of all, say that this is a Jonathan J.M. Rowe pick. This is an album that Doug Cooper, your uh, not-so-humble host, has um, never heard before. What's never. it called? This album is called Paris 1919. Mm -hmm. um, I guess this is our second time to visit the Great War. Or this is the aftermath. <laughs> this of is the, the yeah. Uh, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, uh, this is an album I've never heard a single song off of. It's an album I've never heard of. And... Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, good. And uh, I forgive you for um, XTC. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, yeah, this album I I had heard about. Um, first of all, I, I'm a huge Velvet Underground fan, so that's how I came to know who John Cale was. Um, but, you know, I also kind of came to him his solo work i kind of came to later in life i was aware of some of his collaborations uh most notably with uh, the first one i really kind of got into was his collaboration with lou reed on songs for drella nobody but you nobody like you since i that shy Won't you decorate my house? I'll sit there quiet as a mouse. Which was an album uh, about Andy Warhol and their time, their, their time that they spent with Andy Warhol. And we'll kind of get into the history of that in a little while. That was their nickname for him, Drella. Yeah, Drella. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then I was another album that he did was with Brian Eno called Wrong Way Up, and I absolutely fell in love with that album. favorite albums one of these days i would hope we could uh, actually review it on the podcast we'll consider it okay. <laughs> uh but then on his solo work i really wasn't all that um all that familiar with and about i guess i can't remember there was a live album he did called fragments of uh on a rainy day or fragments of a rainy day or something it's a live album it's just him and a piano and or his on guitar acoustic guitar and the first song on that album is uh, Child's Christmas in Wales. And I just remember really, really liking that. And I was looking for the album that it came, that it was on. And it, it was Paris uh, 1919. Uh, started reading more about the album itself. Found out who plays on the album. Uh, members of Little Feet. Three members of Little Feet play on the album. And uh, it also is produced by our 
guy who's come up several times, Chris Thomas. So almost everything that Chris Thomas puts his hands on, I usually like. Um, So I I was intrigued by the album, bought it off Amazon about seven years ago and uh, just fell in love with it. And I thought it'd be a good album for us to to review here. Um, I. Before you move on, I think what's kind of interesting about that frag- Fragments for a Rainy Season is I believe that is the first time his version of Hallelujah That's correct. by Leonard Cohen yeah. was done. Goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing That it, for those of you who, uh, well, there's, I guess, two camps. People who love that song and don't mind hearing it every five <laughs> minutes are those of you who feel like that song has been overplayed to death. You really have John Kale to thank for that because his version of it is what everybody else copies. Yeah, it really his His version is kind of the, the blueprint version of it. It's the first time I ever heard it. I thought it was his song. Well, that's that's understandable because there's a lot of this album that sounds Leonard it is, Cohen. Yeah. It is. Um, another reason why I chose this album is, um, you know, as I was mentioning, John Cale is often considered the collaborator. He does a lot of work with other people. Uh, it and he's also kind of known for his avant-garde collaborations. Uh, he is a classically trained musician. Uh, and he really got into some of the more uh, avant-garde um, musicians at the time, and some of whom he actually uh, collaborated with, one being Terry Riley. And another being uh, Lamont Young, and those are all kind of guys that are kind of known for their avant gardeness. But what's kind of <laughs> <laughs> you're supposed to say avant garde. Uh, but what's surprising about this album is how straightforward and pop it is, and it, it I think that's a part of the you know John Cale. I think was so the the influence that he brought to. The, the Velvet Underground was that kind of avant-garde stuff. I think after he left, after their second album, the albums became much more straight-ahead rock and roll. You weren't getting, the, you know, the Black Angels' death song. Maybe the choice of his fate set themselves out upon a platform to choose. What had he to lose? Not a ghost bloody country all covered with sleep where the Black Angel did weep. Not an old city street in the east. Or you weren't getting the the um, shiny boots of leather kind of stuff that you had on the first two Velvet Underground albums. And I think, so what I was expect, you know, the things that I would expect would be to hear that kind of sound after that. And it's surprising to me that this is just so straightforward. It is orchestral in places, but it's very, it's just, it's a very, in my opinion, a very accessible album. That was my greatest uh, surprise 
is I was expecting something difficult, uh, remote, um, snooty. Yeah. Uh, and this album is maybe close to the most um, approachable album we have covered so far. Now, I want to be very clear. I am not talking about the lyrics. Okay? Yeah. I'm talking about the the production and the and the tunes. Yeah. They are very very quickly um, uh, uh, acquired by yeah. a listener. Um, I I have a slightly different opinion about that. That's why you're here, Tony. Um, <laughs> I I don't disagree that it's likely more approachable than a lot of other John Cale stuff, um, and it's much more straightforward. And there's some. And I'm not. I'm not going to say that there's not some fantastic moments on this album. I feel a little bit like you did with with Skylarking, Doug, in that I looked at the reviews of this album, and they are five stars across the board. People talk about this album in hushed tones, mm-hmm. and I get a little bit of the Emperor's Got No Clothes when I read that <laughs> stuff um, because I, I it's. You know how we talk about how it's difficult to look at stuff as it or, or be part of the time when it came out. So I'm looking at this album. Uh, let's see, it came out what seventy two, seventy three, seventy three. Yeah. So it's what fifty. It's fifty, almost fifty years old, mm-hmm. and I'm listening to it with a bunch of stuff that I'm sure has been influenced by it as as well. And it's it's difficult for me to see how this had such a groundbreaking, shocking moment to all these critics who just you know just dump a bunch of praise on it again i don't want to i don't want to be negative because i don't hate this album at all this is not an album i i hated listening to but i did find myself feeling slightly indifferent from time to time which is a weird feeling to have did you feel left out like somebody Give me the key. <laughs> maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit. That's but, how I um, felt with the XTC. Yeah. XTC. Uh, I had but, zero. Uh, I didn't hate it at all. I didn't feel like it. What I could tell it was good. Yeah. yeah. But I, it wasn't. Uh, not, whatever wavelength it was on would not connect. And I don't. Yeah. You know. And I really don't want to be negative because John Cale is a fascinating individual and is uh, and yeah. is a part of the DNA of a whole slew of bands I like and listen to. Mm-hmm. And again, this isn't a bad album. I don't want to give that impression. I just it was a bit of a head scratcher for me reading just glowing review after glowing review after glowing review. And I it was I just I guess you're right, Doug. It was this feeling of I just don't quite understand where that's coming from. It, it it you know John like I was saying earlier John Cale was so much a part of the scene so much you know the plastic plastic explosion inevitable whatever it is, you know all that kind of pop art sort of weird stuff that Andy Warhol was doing and to me what makes it maybe this is something that's was what the critics liked is that it does seem so removed from that it seems more pastoral it seems like he's not talking about the in, he, he's kind of getting away from the influence that he's had. Yeah. And I think that might be something that where people are just, you know, just surprising that he could do something like this. I, I, I do find it odd, Doug. when you say lyrics, like I, I get what you're saying in terms that you like, you, you want the lyrics to kind of explain or have some semblance of what the song is about. But the one thing I will say about this album, and I don't know if JM agrees with me or not. I felt like this was by far the most lyrical and I don't mean that as in like lots of lyrics, but just the the kind of imagery yeah. and 
and and and uh i i don't disagree with that yeah. at all it's he's obviously paying enormously close attention to his lyrics i just haven't deciphered what at this, least half yeah about. i can't yeah. really understand and i and i read i read something that might might be a clue to that and jam see what you think about this the guy said that while the music is an avant-garde Perhaps what John Cale did was rely on the lyrics and yeah. put all his energy on that to kind of be a little un- unsettling or unnerving for the listener because you just can't quite quite grasp what's what's being told to you. Yeah, uh, and even just the subject matter that you you okay, a child's Qu- Christmas in Wales is the name of the first song, which is a you know a Dylan Thomas poem, great Dylan Thomas poem and you know you kind of okay well he's going to be talking about dylan thomas and a child's christmas in wales and there's really i'm i keep sitting there reading it going okay when is it gonna be like the story and it's not and 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 there's there are he does drop some dylan thomas references in there this is um it's a very literary album yeah it is you've got graham green you have Macbeth. yeah if this you if you were an english teacher you could assign kids to go home (laughs) <laughs> and look up everybody in here and tell yeah. them, tell you what books they wrote. Yeah. And you've got John Cale with his, uh, I don't know, maybe at this time he didn't have his William Shakespeare hairdo, but uh, <laughs> at one point he sported, at one point sported he did. a very a Prince Gallant kind Prince of thing. Prince Gallant, yeah, it was, it was something else. <laughs> it was Prince Gallant with uh, really dark sunglasses. Yeah, what I, what Iggy Pop said was uh, when, because he produced the Iggy and the, or the Stooges, not Iggy, the it, Stooges' first album, and he said he looked over in the control room and Nico was there with him, and Nico and John Keller sitting in the control room looking like they just fell out of the Adams family. <laughs> You know, <laughs> dark, dark clothes, sunglasses yeah. uh, on. Thank yeah. you. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about who John Cale is. His We've mentioned he's got a classical upbringing. We've mentioned he's from Wells. I believe he did. He His mom was Welsh, and I believe his dad was British. Is that right? That sounds right. Something normal. Know. Something, yeah. And, but his mom, uh, he, he grew up speaking Welsh, and his dad wasn't all that big a fan of his son learning it, but his mom was very insistent on it. And uh, I'm not really sure how he got his, where the musical part of his upbringing came from. He, well, he started playing the piano when he was seven and took to it like a duck to June bugs, as we say in Texas. <laughs> it was a prodigy, right? Almost in- instantly, he like knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he he played organ at the local church when he was younger, and he played viola for the wealth youth, uh, Welsh youth, youth orchestra. orchestra. Yeah, which is funny. He said that he picked that because it was the only thing left. <laughs> <laughs> like they all all the kids ran to the instruments, and nobody wanted the viola. Yeah, it seems so like the viola it. is always like the 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 bastard stepchild of the string. Is there another one in a rock band? <laughs> no, and I mean it's it's kind of like it's. I mean, you could say it's like the flute with Jethro Tull, but there are other flautists, including Lowell George. Well, yeah. I was uh, I was thinking of another instrument. It's oh. the last choice among the rock band guys. Oh, I the see. One that gets no chicks. Yeah, the boss. The boss. Yes, as they the say, the viola of rock. The viola of rock. Yeah. <laughs> But it's it's funny we we jokingly said this before we started, but it's really you could name the instruments he doesn't know how to play rather yeah. than I mean to be quicker than naming the ones he does because yeah. he knows so, he's just unbelievably talented. And, and from all the accounts I read, he's kind of ashamed of his 
abilities. <laughs> like they, they would have to write down the, uh, they would have to put down the sheet music so that they could copyright the music. <laughs> and um, they, it would, they would, um, other members of the Velvet Underground I'm talking about, they would struggle and struggle to get these things written out. And he could do it in minutes without <laughs> any trouble, but he didn't want to because he didn't like that side of himself. Yeah. That talented. What <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, if I could do something like that, you, you guys would never hear the end of it. This podcast. podcast would be You'd over have, because of that. We'd be taking video of you and just posting Here it. Here I am transcribing. Yeah. But he, uh, so he was pretty acclaimed as a, you know, as a child for his, his ability. And then he actually wrote a piece that got some notoriety. It was a, when he was what, eight, 13, 13. Yeah. Uh, what was that? It was a Takata. Takata in the style of, and I'm going to butcher this, Kacha Turian, I guess. Um, I don't know who that is. I'll show my ignorance, but yeah, it was, uh, the BBC recorded it when he was 13. He probably wrote it. Maybe he might've written it when he was eight, but he was recorded when he was 13. Wow. Well, he then he went to he started going to a music school in somewhere in the in the United Kingdom. Uh, yeah, Goldsmiths College. Um, he was wanted to be a conductor. Wow. And that gave him an opportunity to come to the United States, and he caught the ear of none other than Aaron Copeland. Absolutely. Yep. Which so he came to the United States. To work with Aaron Copeland, was the dean it, of American composers. Of, yeah, he was probably at, at one point the most popular American composer around. He until uh, West Side Story. Yeah, until about, yeah, about right. He one of the things that he was famous for was being able to take American folk songs. turn them into symphonies he could just take uh like just an old fiddle tune and and turn it into a um like a full-on orchestra or a concerto and he wrote ballets around it um one of his more famous pieces maybe not for its classical version but a fanfare for the common man Which was actually later covered by Emerson Lake and Palmer, but <laughs> he did. Did he? Did he? Um, did he uh, envision somebody throwing knives at a keyboard <laughs> while they were playing it? Doing, we were doing that, yeah. Uh, but he's—you've probably heard a lot. Some of his stuff he gets played every now and then, uh, and they'll, you know, PBS will do a um, their great masters piece. He's been on that. Well, well. I, I think if uh, anyone in the audience cared about that kind of music they'd already know about it yeah but you know you know what what caught his aaron copeland's attention and it's worth mentioning because of the piece that um that john kale did 
when he for graduation is because it, it plays into something later on. He performed uh, Lamont Young's X for Henry Flint, which is a piano piece that you play kneeling with your elbows. <laughs> Yeah, that's that stare you just gave me, Doug, is about right. Uh, and and what's interesting when he was at the uh, at the uh, Tanglewood or the Conservatory of Tanglewood in Massachusetts, the school that Aaron Copeland was, John Cale composed a piece that was scored for piano and axe. <laughs> so there was a lot of weird oh, stuff going on guard. in the uh-huh. yeah. There was some weird stuff going on in, in the you know. There's a book by Michael Nyman that actually tells you what all was going on in the music scene at this time. So yeah, then he uh meets up with um and, and there's another story I'm not really I don't know how he met up with with Lou Reed, but they started hanging out together. I think I think they actually had an apartment together at one point. Yeah, he um he met him a couple years after he moved to New York. Uh it's it's important to because of what he brought to the underground, just talk briefly about what he was doing with Lamont Young. They played, uh, he was in a, 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 I don't know, a band, whatever you want to call it, an orchestra called Dream Syndicate, yeah. where they did drone music, right? which is they would just sustain notes for hours on end, which just sounds lovely. Um, <laughs> and didn't one of them last like 18 hours or something? Something like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, Lamont Young says that they practiced six days a week, seven hours a day, just to, I guess, I guess numb themselves. I don't know. <laughs> it, but, it seems like you would require some um, substances. Yeah. Yeah. When he um, was on uh, What's My Secret, that TV show. Oh, he was? Yeah. Like that was, he, there was that, the longest piece ever performed. It was Lamont Young? Was one, I think it was by Lamont Young. And, and John Cale was actually, he was, he didn't play the whole 18 hours, but he was part of that. Group. Well, it's funny because just real quick, he is uh, he is now uh, recently, and I say recently within the last five years or so, kind of gone back to doing drone orchestration. Oh, really? and, and but this is the kicker: he's got drones flying over the audience as well. So it's double <laughs> layers. It's drone music and drone. I mean, it's a whole thing. Wow. Again, <clears throat> where are the clothes on the emperor? But anyway. <laughs> Uh, yep. so, uh, yeah, he met Lee Reed in 65. I don't really know how they met. Yeah, um, I couldn't really find uh, Other than the fact he said, there's a story where he said he heard Lou Reed playing these songs, I think like Waiting for the Man, but it was all acoustic. Uh-huh. And, uh, John Cale, it sounded a little Dylan-y and he hated it immediately. He says he hates he hated all that folk stuff because like Dylan and Joan Baez because it was all questions. Everyone had a question, but they didn't have any answers, <laughs> and it drove him crazy. If you uh, hear that uh, that version of Wait No, it it does sound and it's it's purposeful. Yeah. I mean, it's it is obvious that uh, yeah, it's and it and it makes sense if you're Lou Reed with that strikingly limited range. Yeah. Who do you want to uh, try to imitate? I mean, you <laughs> well, got Cohen and Dylan. Yeah, and he and so when they met in '65, what Kale immediately caught on. I mean, after he finally got over his I don't, this hippiness, was that these songs were talking about stuff that nobody else was talking, like heroin. Yeah, heroin Lou, yeah. He had written, Lou Reed had written heroin before the Velvet Underground had ever gotten together. Yeah. 
And, and, and I, I heard John Kill praise uh, Lou Reed's uh, ability with lyrics, and that 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 lyrical ability was very attractive to him because he he appreciated it, and that's obvious from this album with all his uh, references to yeah. literature. He well, appreciated it, but he uh, he felt unable to imitate it. He, he also uh, he thought he said, "Okay, I finally have a guy I can work with. This whole cross pollination of rock and avant garde, I can do something with it because of Lou Reed." I think a, like the perfect example of them doing that is Venus and Furs. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather with flash girl child in the dark comes in bells. Your servant don't forsake him. Because it's got that droney viola in mm -hmm. the background, mm -hmm. much like it's the to me the pinnacle of that kind of. We're going to take this this weird right. avant garde stuff and this guy who's just rolling around in the grunge of New York yeah. and put them together. Well, yeah. that's what it is, and uh, you hear people talk about that album. That is the song they talk about. Yeah, yeah. It's not the most popular song. It's not the most well known song, but it is the song that everybody eventually. Well, and the other thing that that they got that they found a commonality in is that they hated hippies so much. That was like <laughs> they were they were going to be the counter to the counterculture, if you will, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, and that 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 whole attitude influenced uh, the New York punk scene tremendously. Yeah, yeah. But, that's, uh, that's reminiscent of we've we've talked about hating hippies before when yeah. we were doing uh, Ramones so, and uh, yeah. John Kill has this great thing where he said uh, he goes, oh, "We hated all that summer of love with a vengeance, and apart from all the flower children and everything else, it was just silly." Woodstock, he says, were uh, uh, they were happy it ended that they ended up in the mud because it served <laughs> them right. I mean, just this kind of vitriol at, yeah. at the hippie. Um, yeah, but it's so odd to me that they're they're. Number their first song on their first album is Sunday Morning. Sunday morning brings the dawn It's just a restless feeling by my side. It starts off with that happy little Celeste that yeah, it's uh, like a John hippie Gale. song. Yeah. Well, I think yeah, I think what I mean, if if you're going to follow that they were what they meant what they said, yeah. it's sort of lulling you into something before they bludgeon you overhead with the yeah. with well, the rest of the dirt, right? I, yeah. Sunday morning was uh, the desire I I think of Andy Warhol was for uh, Nico yeah. to sing that. Yeah. Well, and so you brought up Nico, so we can talk about her a, a bit. She so the Velvet Underground as we talked about, was Lou Reed and John Cale, and it was also Sterling Morrison and Maureen Moe yep. Tucker. They got a gig at this Cafe Bazaar thing. This is just briefly before they go in uh, uh, to the studio, and uh, <laughs> there's evidently a picture. I tried to find it online, but I read about it. It shows them playing, uh, and the crowd is visibly upset. <laughs> 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 what the, what they're hearing? I mean, it's not like oh, this is something weird. They're like visibly upset by what is going on. But anyway, Andy Warhol ends up going to the Cafe Bazaar and seeing the Velvet Underground and decides is either talked into or decides himself. There's mixed versions of that that he wants to that he wants to 
manage the sure. So they go into the a studio. I think they didn't even have a uh, record label at the time, and they made an album. It was supposedly produced by yeah loosely loosely produced by Andy Warhol. That he got he got credit, and he brought in um, this Chanteuse <laughs> <laughs> named Nico, who is also she was more a model than she was. She's no, she was like a, another part of Andy Warhol's entourage. She was. Was she German? Yes. Um, she had a real kind of halting, like alto voice. Um, and, you know, she made arguably some pretty good music, but it, it's definitely a voice that you kind of have to get used to. It's a voice that I feel like John Cale said, oh, I can do that. Yeah. And what <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. So she uh she joined you know he got Andy Warhol kind of thrust Nico on and I think she's and largely because he thought there ought to be a striking you no know, looking woman on. Well, yeah. and he also didn't he also thought there should be somebody who could sing. Cuz yeah. let's face it, Lou Reed yeah. while has done he's done as much of a big jerk as that guy was, has made some great music. He's not the greatest yeah, singer. Yeah, nobody's going to put him well, down. I'm not convinced she is either. <laughs> she's not, but but it she seems got... like she's so concerned about finishing her words that she stops singing. <laughs> well. so, so they make that. I mean, that first album, The Velvet Underground, and Nico is you know, it's a classic. Classic. So after that, she leaves. They make another album, White Light, White Heat. Um, it's a little more rock and roll. Um, got some pretty cool songs on it, and. This is where the relationship between John Cale and Lou Reed starts to fall apart. And famously, even to this, you know, I don't know that they ever really fully made up, even though they made, they did collaborate together occasionally. Um, and I don't think that's on John Cale. No. <laughs> I, I think when they got together with that album uh, that you mentioned earlier yeah. to collaborate, yeah. uh, John Cale, although bitter about, how he got kicked out of the band yeah. uh, was willing to do that, but Lou Reed was such a horse's ass during that whole process. He's like, I don't even know why this was worth it. Yeah. So he, but again, when I was saying what, earlier, when John Cale left, I do think a lot of that experimentation, that that kind of avant-garde stuff, the in the definitely the Andy Warhol uh, influence was pretty much God. And uh, yeah, and the way he, the way he kicked and he did kick John Cale out of the band is really, yeah. really awful. He got the other two um he got uh Mo Tucker, Tucker and, and Sterling Morrison Morrison together at a cafe and said uh they were just about to go tour the Midwest and he said uh John Cale's not in this he's gone. He's not he's not here or something like that. And uh and Morrison's like, oh what for the week? He's like, no, he's gone. He's not in the band anymore. And they yeah. an argument ensued and Lou Reed evidently slapped his fist down on the table and said, "If John Cale goes, I don't." And they're like, "Well, okay." Yeah. And they and and Morrison says he sold. He looked out for his own self interest and sold John Cale out. He felt awful about it, but he did it. Yeah. Uh, very shortly after he gets the boot, uh, 
John Kill goes to Detroit to see an MC5 concert, and before Doug asks me because he listens to Doja Cat or whatever who the MC5 <laughs> are, they were a they were a pretty pretty good uh, rock and roll band out of Detroit. Um, they were sort of throwbacks to that classic rock and roll sound. I just, we've been there before, yeah. And um, and the the Stooges opened for them at that show. And John Cale was blown away by what he saw. I mean, there's a spe- for all accounts, uh, the, the Stooges were a spectacle. I mean, you know, Iggy, Iggy <laughs> Pop rolling around on glass and rubbing peanut butter all over him. Just do whatever. There's stories, boundless stories about it. But he was just enthralled. And so when it came time for the Stooges to go into the al- into the studio to record the first album, which was very not very far after he gets the boot from the Velvet Underground, yeah. he ends up uh, coming on as a producer. Um, for that first Stooges album. So I just have a question, guys. I think if it's okay to talk about this now is this idea, I think this is a fundamental thing kind of an interesting thing is that would we have the New York punk scene if it, if John Cale had never existed? I think it would be very difficult because he, first of all, he was on the ground floor with the velvets. Um, he recognized, uh, he, he recognized that that music had a, a, a genuine quality to it. It wasn't just guys just thrashing their guitars and just doing, you know, strange things on stage or actually was some, some good music there. So I think he is pretty pivotal to well, it. I, I read is, this. Is there an element of that drone thing in punk rock? Uh, uh, hmm. I, I, I think you can get maybe later. I don't know. If you I, I find the Ramones immensely tuneful and catchy. Yeah. I don't think there's any droniness about them whatsoever. I, I, yeah, when, when I said that, I wasn't thinking of the Ramones cause they, they're a pop band. They are. Yeah. I, uh, it's there. When I said earlier, this is one of the most accessible bands. Uh, <laughs> I forgot about the Ramones. You can, you can sing the Ramones after you heard them one time. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, there was this article on, and I'll do a shout out to, um, please kill me.com about this very item about whether John Kell, I think they called him the godmother of <laughs> punk or something like that. But the, the interesting thing about this article is if you take John Kale out of the equation, the Velvet Underground's not the same, and then mm-hmm. do they are they in, as influential as they are? And then if you if he's not producing the first Stooges album, is that the album that everybody knows? And the Stooges influenced the Ramones and countless yeah. other bands. Yeah. yeah, and he also produced um, he produced a Patty Patty Smith's first. And do you, do you have, because she was also extremely influential on in that whole New York yeah. punk scene. Yep. So you have to pull that out. Uh, pull out all pa- Patti Smith's albums, maybe. And then you don't have the Ramones, perhaps, because of that. Yeah. And so it's just this weird domino thing. It's like the butterfly flapping its wings, creating a hurricane <laughs> on the other side of the world. Um, John Cale had that kind of effect, I think, on the music yeah. industry of, uh, or the music coming out of, certain areas of the u.s mm-hmm. from the early 70s to 
almost the 80s. And it's all, That's why you listen, ladies and gentlemen. John Kill, Chaos Theory, right here go. on This Is Vinyl Tap. <laughs> and then it, coming from a guy who's classically trained, whose main instrument is the viola and uh, the piano, and then just being able to recognize that there is a music here. There's, this is important music. This is music worth listening to. I want to be a part of it. I mean... The the most unpunk background. That it's, it's like Saint Paul being the, um, the 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 apostle to the Greeks, coming from the most Jewish background of yeah. all. And here we have John Carroll, the most classical trained musician we've talked and, about, and, and yeah. he's bringing. He, he's interested in these guys that can barely do three chords. Yeah. Well. Well, he also. I, you probably knew this, Jam. He also produced the Modern Lovers. Yeah which yeah. we've talked about briefly when mm-hmm. we were talking about the cars. He produced the first Squeeze album, yeah. which they were named after the very last Velvet Underground album, which didn't have John Cale or Lee Reed on. Yeah. But he's got his fingers in all these pies. The, yeah. I, the interesting thing about what he talks about and almost anybody that talks about the punk and scene and the Stooges and all that stuff at the end of Velvet Underground at this at this time is they say stuff like, it's music talking about real stuff. It's all about real yeah. subjects. Yeah. I mean, I don't know uh, how much singing about heroin was real. To, <laughs> I mean, it, wasn't real it was real to Writing all of them because they're, they're rolling about, around yeah. in the slime. But yeah. I don't know if anybody else was. Anyway. Yeah. Usually when they talk about real life, they're talking about the grunge, yeah. not the real life where everybody's functional and happy. <laughs> right. And, uh, raising right, good right. kids. So, uh John Cale produces the Stooges. Yeah, he he, he goes on and produces a lot of other people, and he, and he also does some collaborations. Um, but he, at the same time, it's pretty soon after he leaves the Velvets, he does put out his uh, some his first solo work. Uh, I think the one, probably the one that gets mentioned, other than Paris nineteen nineteen, is uh, Vintage Violence. Is that the one right before this? Yeah, yeah. And so the thing that's, again, that one doesn't, even though it's got one of the strangest album covers I've ever it's seen. It's a weird one. It's, it's almost a scary one. Um, it doesn't, it is also accessible, not quite as accessible as Paris 1919, but that one's right. more avant-garde. When we were listening to this, I went back and listened to stuff, and when I listened to Vintage Violence, I was like, it's not that far removed right. from Paris 1919. Yeah. So why were people freaked out about this not sounding like i I just don't get that yeah uh it may have been because they may have thought thought vintage violence was just a uh one-off and then you know he did go do that album with terry riley which was weird which was weird Speaking of this, are y'all ready to jump into this album? I believe so. I think uh, we need to talk about who's on it because it's kind of interesting. Yep. Uh, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, our <laughs> humble producer, uh, we have a John Kill album, but he didn't do it alone. <laughs> no, he did not do it and alone. And we shouldn't overlook those troopers <laughs> that helped him. Well, uh, okay, so we've talked about 
just about every, I think we've talked about all the musicians that's played on this album before. Um, we'll start with the producer. Again, we got Chris Thomas. If you want to find out about Chris Thomas, uh, go back and listen to um, mainly our Pretenders one. But he's, this is a, I think this is the fourth time we've talked about Chris Thomas. This is at least the third and album. His beginning was Abbey Road Studio Abbey Road with Studio. the Beatles, yeah. which uh, many of y'all are familiar with. And he worked with. <laughs> Procol Harum, uh, and then Sex Pistols. Um, so he's, he mixed part of Dark Side of the Moon, I believe. Yeah, he did part. part he, yeah, Wish You Were Here album by Badfinger he produced. Yeah. So I guess this is the fourth album of his that he's mm-hmm. produ- that we're talking about. Um, then there are three other guys on this album that played in a band that we've talked about before. Little Feet, um, which is pretty surprising because this album does not really sound like a, a little Pete album. There might be a couple of spots where it does, but it, overall it, this is... I a, don't hear any New Orleans. Yeah, I don't hear it yet. There's, There's... no boogie-woogie piano. or. Uh, but Bill Payne, uh, we're pretty sure Bill Payne plays. There's no uh, liner notes on the album, or the album doesn't list any uh, of the... There's no musician credits on it. Um, so, but Lowell George the guitar player, main leader of Little Feet, uh, is on this. And then uh, Richie Hayward, the drummer for Little Feet, is on here doing some great, great drum work. And then we have a guy we've talked about. I can't remember which album we talked about with him, but uh, it's Wilton uh, Wilton Felder, who is a played he, he was in pop music he played bass but he was also a great saxophone player and he played with the uh what is it the jazz Cru- crusaders he played I saxophone on that. that yeah so he uh doing some excellent bass work on this but and, and just to give people an idea of of what he did i mean he was on uh he was the one of the in-house bass players for motown so he's on jackson five albums he was wow. on marvin gay stuff he played on He's played with Steely Dan. He played on Billy Joel albums, and he was all over Sail Away by Randy Newman. Um, He's a heck of a bassist. Great bass player. And then uh, there's some orchestration on this album, and it's done by the UCLA uh, Orchestra. I guess the... the (laughs) World-renowned. World-renowned in-house orchestra for for UCLA. So, yeah, so there's a pretty good pedigree coming into this. And, yeah, how did he wind up with three fifths of little feet playing on the, on well, the album. I think we've seen that, or I saw that he, uh, just fell in love with, um, Dixie, Dixie chicken, chicken. Yeah. loved it. And he's like, uh, and, and I also believe at the time, uh, they weren't doing anything. And someone said, why don't you give them a call and see if they'd be into it? Yeah. And it, it wasn't beyond or above Lil George to play on other people's stuff. Oh he, yeah. He's done it. Yeah. Did it. He was fine with being a session guy and doing that kind of stuff. But it's just odd that this, that he normally puts his signature sound on almost every track he plays on. Well, there's slide on this stuff, there is slide, I, but it does it's not sound it like the sound. It's not like I, I think I could have listened to this a hundred times without hearing Lil George. <laughs> well, uh, Jonathan J. M. Rowe, this album has two sides, mm-hmm. and with your permission, I'd like to start with <laughs> side one. All right, and uh, we go straight to childhood with uh, Child's Christmas in Wales. So 
What do you have to say about that? I think it's a fantastic way to open the the song. It's it's um, really kind of shows off Kale's piano playing, um, and also he he does that. Uh, you know, his voice does some some acrobatics here. He does that falsetto at the beginning of it, and it, it it's kind of a weird that opening piano riff is kind of in a weird time signature. So it does kind of, you almost think that, Hey, we're going to go into an avant-garde direction here, but then it just turns into this nice little uh, song about childhood. And it's based, I mean, the title comes from a, a, a Dylan Thomas poem that is actually about Christmas day in Wales. And, but there's really not much of a mention of childhood in Wales or, or I Christmas. Think, I, I think it's just him reminiscing about like these little snippets of things that remind him of his yeah. childhood and he's Welsh. So I think that's where that kid's just inspired by Dylan Thomas <laughs> rather than a Yeah. A, Do you yeah. have a theory on 10 murdered oranges? <laughs> Somebody, I read someplace that I guess blood oranges, which need extreme cold in order to be as red as they are, oh. were, were often eaten or given around Christmas time. Oh. I have no idea if that's I mean, someone just speculating on what that was is okay. because it says it's 10 murdered oranges bled on the board, I think is what it is. So they're like, well, maybe he's talking about blood oranges, but who knows? Yeah, I, I will. I'm, I will tell you, Doug, like you and trying to find some meaning to these lyrics. <laughs> I went to the interwebs just for some help. And most people are like us. They're yeah. just guessing. <laughs> I, I thought you meant that. They the less they know, the more eager they are to give their opinion. <laughs> um, I right off the bat, the bass on this song mm-hmm. stands out to me. Yeah, um, as it does throughout this album, there are pl- parts where, um, again, I'll just be honest, where I find it to be just slightly less than exciting, and then a bass line will come in. And I'm like, oh, that's yeah. actually kind of interesting, mm-hmm. and it'll get me peaked again. And this song does that as well. I had trouble figuring out. I'm assuming it's Lil George's slide guitar, but at first I was like, is that some weird, <laughs> distorted viola playing in yeah, it? But I, I, I think it's slide guitar. I think it's slide I, guitar. I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell. Yeah, the viola parts on this are kind of hard to. I mean, he. I would love to see the conversations between Lil George and uh, John Kell where they're talking about what he should do next. I, yeah, I, I think that'd be. Really <laughs> I, I will. I'll bring up something that um, is on this song and then one other song, not really on most of the album, but this song and then one other song really in particular, um, the production sounds really flat to me. Really? I, 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 that's one of the things I, I do like the production. It's not real crisp. No, Um, it's not crisp at all. And it, it, um, it sounds messy for a guy like, uh, yeah, it sounds messy. And I agree with Tony. I think it is a little flat and, um, I'm going to connect, my comment to what Tony just said, I think his voice is weak. Yes. And um, nobody would hire this guy to be the vocalist in their (laughs) band. Yeah. But I'm going to say what I've said before. That's not voices are for communicating ideas. And I like his voice on this. I do too. I like the way it works and uh, it's limitations. I think uh, lend to my appreciation of this music. Yeah. If you had had a better vocalist singing this, I think it would have sounded less honest mm-hmm. and less earnest. And uh, I'm, it, I'm pleased with his voice, but I do. I, I agree with Tony about that. But 
to me, that becomes a feature. That flatness becomes a feature of this album that I appreciate. Yeah, I, I don't notice it as much, except for one other song. I really notice it that we'll get to, but it just yeah. sounds. It sounds like everything's at the same level. The yeah. drums, yeah. exactly, everything's right. just yeah. there. It's very it, flat. It makes, yeah. I wonder um, if that's not intentional. It maybe it, it is. is so apparent. Yeah, but uh, to go back to his vocals, it's hard for me to complain about his vocals, even though I don't find them great. I do agree with you. They do add a personalness to this album that uh-huh. would be lacking. Yeah. But I'm a fan of Roger Waters. I'm a fan of Morrissey. I can't complain about somebody not being able to sing <laughs> and say that I like those guys. That's like, yeah. I'm just, it's, yeah. it's hypocritical. Um, but for some reason on some of these songs, it's, uh, and maybe it's that just he's, he's embracing that droniness that's in, yeah, in bread I in think, him. Yeah. Uh, it, it gets on my nerves. I mean, he kind of has not on this song, not, it does, but if you but. hear some of his later stuff, he actually has a, a, you know, this, he's kind of a, I guess you would say like a high baritone when he, when he's singing, but there's actually some, some of his later stuff, he actually drops down and it, it's, it almost sounds creepy the way that he can drop his voice down so low and sing. He doesn't, I guess, you know, as his voice mellowed or as his, you know, as he aged, his voice kind of, well, you know, as, cured as a they little. all do. Um, yeah. We talked about Van Morrison's two singing styles yeah. and how he ended up with that other one. Yeah. Well, next we have a song that Jim's going to explain to us. <laughs> um, this is this is a very catchy tune. It is. I and, hate this song. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's that's the peril of an extremely catchy yeah, so- tune is it gets in your head and makes you hate it. Yeah, um, it is. Uh, the name of it is Hanky Panky Know How. Elephants that seem to feed Cause that agriculture won't allow Hanky Panky Know How Hanky Panky Know How And Spelled word sashay, but it's spelled know how like n o. It's not know how like k n o. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's like know how. You know. Yeah, it it's um. You know, the first time I heard this, I was going, "Is he saying packing, packing the house?" Like I couldn't figure out what he was saying. I and then I finally. It's one of this is one of those albums where I didn't even actually look at the 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 song titles because I just would listen to it and not really. You know, uh, but yeah, the, when I saw, oh, God, that's what he's saying, hanky panky know how. Well, I, t- I think it's about cows that no ar- uh, agriculture <laughs> would allow. Um, uh, this song, I've mentioned this before, and I'm gonna mention it again. There's a British comedian named Ben Elton who uh, created the Young Ones. Mm-hmm. He co-wrote, I think he co-wrote uh, the last three seasons of The Black Adder. These are British comedies. And in a stand-up thing, he talks about being in college, walking around, singing a Leonard Cohen ditty, and he goes, uh... <laughs> and that's what this is to me. This sounds like a Leonard Cohen song to me. This song is so boring. It's I, I don't know how... I you, disagree. Oh, I, I, God. I, it's, this it's sounds short. like Doug Cooper on uh, XTC. <laughs> this, this song... And again, I don't hate this album... But this is, to, to quote Doug Cooper on XTC, if the fast-forward button hadn't been invented before, <laughs> it would have been invented for this song. Well, Bonus, luckily, it's, it's short. And that's Bonus, what, yeah. Chris Thomas plays tambourine on Yeah, it. that's really... So it's just basically an organ and a tambourine, and uh, yeah, um, not a whole lot else. But this doesn't sound flat like the first song. No. Um, it, 
No, you're you're right because there's not enough of this song to uh, there's not enough peaks in this song to be flattened. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's like a little like folk a song that you would yeah. hear for a commercial. Right, it really it, is. It, it it does. Sound it's like been that. a long time us doing this podcast that I felt this way about a song. <laughs> I don't really know what this song is about. It's about hanky panky. Why, why don't we? Why don't we say that? We're not going to say we don't know what songs are about from now on and just ask the audience to assume we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it is, we'll talk about a song if we do have an yeah. idea. Yeah, what if, it's about. If, if we know what it's about, we'll share that with you. <laughs> so, uh, the endless plane of fortune. Yeah, you know, this one starts off with kind of that, it's like a dirge almost. It just almost sounds like like, like a um, the way that it, it just almost sounds like it's a, a, a funeral kind of thing. And then, you know, the orchestra, this is the, a pretty highly orchestrated piece, um, which I find pretty fascinating. And then there's a, the part where Kale's voice, he... It almost sounds like he's about to be happy again. There's, there's a, there's the, the chorus is kind of uh, melodic and nice and everything, but then he goes right back down into that dirge sound. And uh, I don't know, it's one of my favorite pieces. At on least it. it's interesting. It is. This it's got, song. And, this song is. There's stuff going on. It's yeah. dramatic. Uh, Lowell George's guitar, I think, is really spooky sounding, yeah. and it adds a layer to it. It also um, like a theremin going through. Yeah, the thing. this and, song was when this song came on. I was like, okay, here's something I can kind of get into because it's interesting. Yeah. While I don't necessarily dig it that much, yeah. uh, it's 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 something that I didn't mind listening to. Um, yeah, it's it's in, and the the again, it's messing with the spelling. The endless plane of fortune. Uh, what 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 kind of plane are they talking about? Are they talking about, I mean, plane would be like, Hey, it's just a plain day, yeah. uh, plane. Like it's the plains of the, you know, the prairies. It's, uh, you're it's, violating the thing. We just like, well, there's the, the, <laughs> in the middle of the song, he talks about, uh, he talks about, um, Transvaal, which is, uh, it's a part of South Africa huh. where they discovered gold and there was a big gold rush there. And as a result, I want to say Johannesburg was kind uh-huh. of started. And the line in the song is where crocodiles and men fight on, they would have played all night, even with loaded dice. It's gold that eats the heart away and leaves the bones to dry. Uh-huh. So I don't know if that's some, again, I'm breaking again, the rules, yeah. but if that's some sort of, I was reading that going, that's got to have something to do with that. I don't know what. Yeah, I, he drops I, a lot of places. In I, his, he does. He name drops and he place drops. And, I, and uh, literature drops. Yeah. The, but I had to look that up because that line, it's the gold that eats a heart away and leaves the bones to dry. Damn, that's a good that's line. A good line. <laughs> no, I, that, that line struck me also yeah. uh, immediately. And uh, it's yeah. more interesting thinking about uh, South Africa. Yeah, and that's a one one of the ones that he sings in almost that lilting way. Um, yeah. So it's kind of, and then I, I would I would be interesting. I'd be very interested to hear what he thinks about his singing on this album. Yeah. Um, 
it's some of it seems like it might be purpose purposeful. There's, yeah. what he's doing. There's one song on this album that I think is maybe perfect. Okay. His vocals, everything about it. We'll get to that, but it's okay. it's it's right. I think you're right. I think there's some purposefulness to his what he's doing with his voice because it's not it's not a great voice like we've established, yeah. but it is emotive in a, in its own way. Yeah. And it it, 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 is. it strikes me as very honest. And yeah. I that may be the most uh, surprising thing. I I was not expecting honesty from someone out of the Velvet Underground. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wasn't I, with them for very long. Yeah. I was expecting more posing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, there's probably some of that going on. I, well. I don't doubt it. I mean, we're name dropping right and left, and yeah. we're sashaying down. Uh, yeah. Uh, Paris streets and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But I feel like part of it, I felt like I was reading The Sun Also Rises. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, Andalusia. 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 When can I see you? When it is snowing out again. Farmer John wants you louder and softer. Can I see you? <laughs> I. Uh, Probably the prettiest song on the. It on is the pretty, album. and it's a hook. Yep, and it's uh, it's John Kill doing country. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I didn't get country. I didn't well, think country, but, but I, I now that you now say that you that, say it, yeah, it's it kinda, would be very easy to turn be, this yeah, into a country. It could be, I guess well, almost yeah. Get uh, some. Well, George's uh, guitar work is definitely country oh, yeah. influenced on this. It's yeah, bit, you yeah. know. I mean, you could see this on a Ken Burns film, you know, yeah. It, but. Yeah, it, it is. It is. That's uh, um, it, one of the things that surprises me. And I know that John Cale plays acoustic guitar on this album as well. But I got to think that 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 finger picking stuff that's going on is is little George. Well, and then the bass again on this song is yeah, great. The bass is cool. It's great. Uh, another one where it's kind of sparse as well. I mean, yeah. you're not a. It's uh, a pretty song. Oh yeah, it's um, and I've heard it covered by Yola Tango. Yeah, and, this is the one song on this album that got some attention. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, it it's a hook. Oh, um, it is. In fact, I may have I may have listened to it enough to start moving away from it because it is such a conspicuous hook. <laughs> yeah. All right, next, next, um, we step away from everything we have done before, <laughs> and uh, we have a song called Macbeth. And, uh, some of y'all out there might not know uh, if you listen to Dojo Cat. Um, <laughs> Macbeth is a play by a guy named William Shakespeare. It's about a... Uh, says you. Uh, says me. It's about a Scottish guy who uh, makes some poor decisions. <laughs> and on egged this on album... by his uh, wife. Egged on by his wife, who yeah. later uh, figures out she, she made some poor yeah, decisions. Yeah, she made... She... But... Um, it has Malcolm in it, which is my father's name. Oh yeah. The uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> the uh, song is the first real rocker on the album. Yeah, and, and it's a fun rocker. It is a fun rocker. It sounds like Lou Reed's joined him. No, it sounds to me like he listened to Norman Greenbaum. Is what it sounds like to me. 
Really? Oh, you don't hear spirit in the sky when you hear this yeah, song? Yeah, I can see Come that. Come on. Yeah, yeah, I do see that. Come but you know, on. This is the one... I hear it now, but I did it before. <laughs> this is the one, um, yeah, like you said, it's the most rocking. It's, it's got Lil George's slide in there really well. You know, this is the one that I I almost think that he could have got Lil George to sing this. I mean, as long as you're there, I, or at least... I, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, or at least just have him in the, singing backup, because I could really see Lil George this singing that song. This is the other song that I find the production really works against this song. It's, again, just so flat-sounding for a song that yeah. sounds... That's this rocking and upbeat. It has no depth to it. His uh-huh. vocals are... Are, I guess they're double tracked, but they're so far down in the mix. Yeah, they're not just, up to this song. James, I did, but I have a Oh, let's let's second. go back in time and suggest <laughs> that. I agree, because it would be. I, it's it, it, whatever they did to the song to me kind of takes the fun out of it. Yeah, well, it's also. I mean, a rocker called Macbeth. I mean, <laughs> and talk, you know, dropping uh, the characters' names all through it, and and uh, it, it's. Yeah, it's just not really a song, not a subject matter you really think to put a screaming slide guitar behind. And uh, but you know it is, it is a fun rocker. It is, it it is a nice kind of change of pace. What they're talking about. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm very familiar with Macbeth, and I see nothing uh, here. Macbethy. Yeah. Nothing Macbethian. Yeah. Okay, now we have the uh, title track. This is the. Oh, I forgot to say we. Flipped over, we are now on side two. So we have a hit. Is and on Fridays she'd be there, but on Mondays not at all. Just casually appearing from the clock across the hall. Here it goes. Except not on this. There's no, there's no, none before, of those on this Before we album. talk about this song, I have to say, I find this side immensely more entertaining and interesting than that first side. I think this second side is, if, if, if I could go back and put my two cents in, I'd say, can you sprinkle some of these in on the, on other, the other side, side and kind of move it around? Cause it's so back. This album to me feels so backward. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. This, is uh you know paris 1919 and it's i've read that it's somehow loosely based on the paris 1919 accords that basic after the great war uh divided up europe among you know the spirit i I listen to uh (laughs) okay i listen to harry styles um i don't know about paris 1919 so so after the world war one ended which was then known as the, the Great, Great War, War. Um, until they had to till we beat it with another one. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they uh, five nations, including Woodrow Wilson from the uh, representing the United States. In, sucks. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, they created a. Uh, they made accords about what, how much Germany was going to have to pay in reparations, and kind of divided up the uh, divided up Germany, right? Yeah. Anyway, so there was, but there were five accords. They, they, there were five different meetings, and that the first one was in Paris, nineteen nineteen, and this is largely uh, thought of as what made Germany so angry that they decided that you know the reparations were almost impossible to repay, made Germany just basically completely bankrupt and batshit crazy. And, oh wait, yeah, I'm sorry, <laughs> I can't say that, can I? <laughs> 
Bat dude, you crazy. crazy. So here's something that um, I, so I I, I did, a little, did a little digging for, uh, about this. So there's an interview with John Cale where he says that um, that when he was thinking about the song and writing it in '71, it was the height of the Cold War and this whole idea of how many missiles can we build. And that, uh, and then he started thinking about Paris 19, and that's how the trouble started with Germany and the war that followed. And so, what's interesting about that is he mentions in this song, um, he mentions Nixon's Secretary of State. Yeah. And so, I think what he's doing, Paris 1919, I think he is, uh, I think he's connecting the Treaty of Versailles with the Paris Peace Accords that ended. Vietnam, the Viet, yeah, U.S. Uh, involvement in Vietnam. That's what I think is going on here because he talks about William Rogers. That was Nixon's Secretary of State. Oh. So I think that's kind of what's going on here. Um, outside of all that boring stuff, this is my favorite song on this album. I love this it's song. Mine too. I yeah. love this. If this whole album was like this, this may be. This oh, may have been one of my favorite that albums. Orchestration ever. that comes in on it. It's just and in his voice, this was one. His where voice I think sounds fantastic. His voice on is it. good on. I, I can't imagine really anyone else doing that. You're a ghost part. Oh God, I love the song, and I and this is a song that I would hear it, and then I'd pull a dug and hit repeat and mm-hmm. hear it again, and then hit it again and hit it. I, it just it's such a great song. It is. Well, and uh, perhaps that's why he named the album. Maybe. After. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was a good choice. It's a wonderful song. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe everybody should start with side two. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Tony's recommendation: start with side two. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next song is Gra- Graham Green. You're having tea with Graham Green in the colored costume of your choice, and you'll be thought in high esteem if you're seen in between. <laughs> uh, oh, it's uh, named after a fellow papist. <laughs> and uh, if, if, uh, if you listen to jo- Dojo Cat or any of those other p- people, you may not know about Graham Greene, but he's a he's an uh, author of great repute. Uh, I think his yeah. most famous book is uh, The Power and the Glory, about a whiskey pre a whiskey priest in Mexico. And uh, I've read several of his books. He's a brilliant author, and uh, even though he's a papist. <laughs> There's lots of, uh, you know, J.K. Chesterton is one of my favorite writers, and uh, he even left the true faith for the uh, Catholic <laughs> faith. Um, can I say this song to me sounds like John Cale channeling his inner Ray Davies? I, I noticed that too. Really? Um, huh. Yeah, this sounds like a this sounds like a less constructed kink song to yeah, me. Yeah, okay, I can see that, yeah. Um, I love the piano part on it, and uh, it's got that nice little riff. And then uh, I love the bass line on it as well. But even uh, his vocal style is reminiscent yeah. of of Ray Davies. Um, it just sounds like it sounds like a Kinks outtake or something. I don't know. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you something very interest interesting about that. Um, I listened to this album over and over again on uh, Amazon mm-hmm. uh, Prime, whatever, and. As soon as the album would end, they would play a Velvet Underground song, and immediately following the Velvet Underground song would be a Kink song. Really? Oh, really? So somehow on their uh, algorithm, algorithm, it's 
connected to the Kinks. It's a good song. It's yeah. it's not as it's not as good as the last song, no. but it's a good song. Yeah. And again, I find I just this the side has some interest, some momentum. It, it yeah, it, it does have some more moment. I'll know. give you that. It's got a little bit more. The song sound a little more crafted, yeah. I guess, than side one. All right, half past France. From here on, it's got to be a simple case of them or me. If they're alive, then I am dead. Pray God and eat your daily bread. Take your time. What does that mean? I have no <laughs> idea, but I, for some reason, uh, we got Dunkirk. Yeah, we got the the lines in this, this. For some reason, this song, the lyrics jump out to me more than any of the other songs. I, I don't really know why, but just something about the way that the wordplay that he has with it. And I, I like his I like his delivery on this song. Um, I'll also say I think this is the one song where you it Lowell George's guitar sounds like. Lowell George's Lowell George, guitar, the, the picking, yeah, the and the and just the uh, the phasing on his yeah. on his guitar sounds the the, the most I, like it. Um, I, I think it's a good song. It's it's um, I don't know if it's I would say like my third favorite song on the album. Well, it's my third favorite song, but the first song on this outside is my first. The one after it's my second. This one's my third. So <laughs> I wonder what his fourth will be. <laughs> This has uh, the line, I'm not afraid now of the dark anymore, and many mountains are n- now mohills, which I, th- I, I, I like. I think that's, that's something you can understand, in it, and then I like Yeah. It. I think that, to me, um, and I, again, just reading between the lines or reading into this, something that's maybe not there, it sounds like somebody who has witnessed the horrors of World War One, mm-hmm. and yeah. therefore, you yeah. know, yeah. is... <laughs> what, what's what what's left to really right you know be shocking yeah but it's somewhere between dunkirk and paris which sounds kind of like world war Two. yeah that's true I maybe mean, just the horrors of war yeah and maybe he's just throwing names out yeah <laughs> they fit and if anyone hasn't seen the movie dunkirk it's a brilliant. yeah fantastic movie <laughs> Antarctica starts here. <sighs> they see her every movie night, the strong against the weak. Lines come out and struggle with the empty voice that speaks, that speaks. Yeah, that was a uh, sigh by me. Uh, yeah, you know, this... This may be the weakest song on the album. Although I was listening to it again today, going, you know, this isn't as bad as I remember it. But the the his vocals on this are like, why? Why does he start the song off the way that he starts off? It's that because whispering? so it's inspired by Sunset Boulevard. Oh. What he says is the whisper is supposedly um, to reflect a person who lives in faded memories. Oh, so it based on the movie Sunset Boulevard. Uh-huh. Oh, well, okay, that makes more sense. And I find it. I find it reflecting really, really annoying singing is what I find. (laughs) Uh, This song would be great if he wasn't whisper singing the whole thing. I I just, it just drives me nuts. Yeah. It's like, come on. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, Sunset Boulevard is the most unlike what you think it's going to be movie ever made. <laughs> it's a fantastic movie. It's I mean it's a fine movie, but no, it's not. It's more than a fine movie. Doug. It's one of my favorite movies. I just I, I'm I'm disappointed because it it's uh, never mind. No, what? <laughs> it's not surprising. Um, it's I think it's not aged well because it's not startling or I guess it well. I mean, we could talk about that, but we shouldn't I think talk it, about it at all. Nobody cares what yeah. we think about. <laughs> we're, we're lucky that there's a few people that care about what we think about music. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think people mainly listen uh, to, so they can start drinking shots. Yeah. Power pop, power pop, power pop. There you go. <laughs> now, yes, there's five DWIs right there. <laughs> I, I think they listen because... Um, they want to hear us be wrong about stuff. So they, can, <laughs> they, they can email us and straighten us out. Antarctica starts here. It's the. I wish it ended here. <laughs> and it really is. Yeah, there really is. There, it, it, that's. It's a short song. Another short song. Thank God. Yeah, and uh, it doesn't. It, if there was a, a song you could have left off the album, I think you could have left this one off. But, but now that I know it's about Sunset Boulevard, a little more intrigued by it. Hey, Jam, I got a question for you. Since you're mm-hmm. the resident Lou Reed. Velvet Underground person. This album came out shortly after Transformer came out. Yeah, like a year after. Yeah. Maybe not even a year. Maybe just a few months. Do you hear anything on this album that sounds like it is like an answer to that album? I'm just curious. And Transformer is a Lou Reed album, just so everybody knows. It was a solo Lou Reed album. album. I believe it has Walk on the Wild Side on it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Perfect Day might there might be some I don't know I'm trying to think of this, this since the song the the lyrics are so obscure on this album I'm trying to go through the the Transformer album and think of Blue Reed lyrics on that um, I don't know the, the ones that just kind of sound similar to me are, are Perfect Day and you know maybe Hanky Panky Know How I mean there's just there, there is just sort of like it, Perfect day is kind of playful. Hanky panky, no house. Kind I've of heard, playful. I've seen people online talk about Andalusia and Walk on the Wild Side. Really? Yeah, because they're both. I think they're both relatively uh, like they're basic two note. There's two notes in the song, and yeah. so that they they rhythm rhythmically sound the same. I agree with you. I was just asking to see what you thought. I don't think there's I don't anything. Hear anything. I don't hear anything either. like that. No. <clears throat> I I didn't even know Andalusia was uh, two notes. <laughs> Our chords. I do. I do. We mean chords, ladies I do. And uh, I do. I, I, this is probably a sacrilege, but as indifferent as I am about this album, I would rather listen to it than Transform. <laughs> well, there's, I love there's, both albums equally well, but there's something very appealing to me about this album. And I, it's it's almost um, appealing to me in the way that. Lou Reed is unappealing to me. I can understand it's, that. It's like they're polar opposites somehow. Like, uh, well, this is kind of shiny, and, and he's, he's not. A, yeah. He's not trying to tell you you're a bad person while you listen. To right. Him. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, I, yeah. I, something you said uh, a couple of weeks ago, Doug, when you were talking about having gotten to know me through this podcast and uh, an album we did early on that will not never see the light of day, mm-hmm. being one of the most Tony Slagle albums ever. Uh, <laughs> 
when I was li- the whole time I was listening to this, I was like, Doug, I can tell Doug's going to dig this album. <laughs> Could you really? Yeah. yeah. I was surprised that it, I dug it, it. It's, it's, um, you've got, you've got a soft spot for stuff like this. I mean, I think I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say it's the same thing, but it's in the same ballpark as days of future past. Yeah. It's got that kind of Baroque pop orchestration thing going on. Well, yeah. that I think you just, I think it, it speaks to you in some way. I think it's sophisticated. I think it's my tender heart. <laughs> I think it. I think it's. Uh, you forget people have listened to fifty nine of these already. Yeah. They know the tender heart <laughs> thing is nonsense. <laughs> I think the thing that it that it is is it's sophisticated without being in your face sophisticated. I mean, it's a little in your face <laughs> when you say sachet. It's there. There's yeah. there is a smattering of pretense on these. Songs. Yeah, sure, sure, but, but it's. Maybe it's almost like a pretense you can forgive. Yeah. Like a kid in college or something. Well, I mean, Days of Future Past have got. That, oh, yeah. There's pretense, there's pretense all over that thing, too. But, 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 yeah. Especially the cold hearted old. <laughs> but it's so good. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's stop talking about how right I am about everything and move <laughs> on to something else. Um, Tony. Yeah, Doug. I don't know if you remember this or not, but we give two ratings on this podcast. Yeah. One is our feelings, and the other is our cold-hearted orb. orb. <laughs> <laughs> Analyzing the song for uh, without any regard to feelings. Uh, let me, first of all, have your cold-hearted orb uh, critic rating. I... I um. I've talked about some of the issues I have with the production on this album, whether it's intentional or not as, as my cold hearted critic, it, it rubs me the wrong way. There's enough on the album to have that be forgiving, but not enough for me to join everybody else with their four and a half, five star reviews. For me, this is a three and a half star album. Okay. And, uh, your emotions. So, uh, yeah, I um, if I were to walk in a room and somebody had this playing, I wouldn't be repulsed by it or go, oh, God, turn that off. I'd listen to it. I'd sit down. It might even take me out of a conversation I'm having because the music is engaging enough on some of the songs. Would you push your button on uh, Shazam? Uh, if I heard if I heard Paris 1919 in the store, I would definitely Shazam that song. I think that song is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um. It was funny because I was, I was walking around the house doing a little moaning about this early on. <laughs> but, oh, listen, after repeated viewings, I feel differently or viewings, listings, I feel differently about it. But early on, I was moaning a little bit about it, and that song came on, and my wife was like, "Oh my!" And I said, "No, this is the best song. I love this song. <laughs> Instantly, I love this song." So we had a little bit different there. Anyway, to answer your question, long, long way to answer your question, uh, I can't see myself listing this album on my like pulling it out and saying oh i'm in the mood to listen to paris 1919 i don't want anyone to think that that's because i think this is a bad album it's just not my cup of tea i don't mm-hmm. think it's a bad album i but in terms of my listening pleasure pulling it out again it's uh, 2.5 all right thank you tony doug um we're gonna ask you some questions <laughs> it's not gonna be about your looks it's going to be about your opinion, and I hope you appreciate that. Well, I do. Thank you very much. Um, 
What do you think about this album, Doug? Well, as, as a critic, I'm going to give it a solid 4-4. Uh, four, four. Uh, it's obvious this guy is talented and imaginative. Thank you, Doug. Uh, and as uh, your feelings, bring your feelings into this and tell us what you think. As everybody knows, I have more feelings than all the other males. And uh, I, I really think that uh, this album probably rates as a four for feelings. Um, I think it was, it was well-conceived, well-written, and uh, I will be listening to it again. And uh, I will continue my efforts to figure out what he's talking about. I, I do want to just put a little caveat on something you said about XTC. I'm planning on doing this. Well, I said I probably won't listen to this again. I think I will try to grasp what everyone's talking about and try to listen to it again and see if that light bulb pops off in my head. That's funny you brought that up because when I listened to the uh, XTC podcast after it was published, my appreciation for the band did increase. Hmm. And uh, I did enjoy it more. And I think I will give XTC some more effort. I, I, I have a serious uh, prejudice against that period of time and music that I'm working hard to overcome because I'm such a wonderful person. <laughs> uh, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, our uh, very humble producer, you picked this record. Mm -hmm. Where does it stand with you? Well, as a critic, I'm going to agree with them. I'm going to, I would probably. Give it a 4.5. You know, if it was a Rolling Stone record guy, it would get four and then a half star. Um, if I were, you know, as as far as personally, um, this album was a, a big surprise to me when I first put it on. Uh, I was, like I said, I was familiar with some of the songs on it, but I'd never heard them produced, you know, in, in on this album. Um so I'm going to give it, you know, same. I'm going to give it a 4.5. It is, it is an album that since I've discovered it, I have listened to it uh, quite a few times, and uh, probably more than I have a lot of the other albums I've bought in the same period time period. Well, uh, it's a it's a wonderful <laughs> surprise for me, and it will rank as one of the highest of undiscovered records that are really appreciated as a result of this podcast, Tony. You failed us tonight. I did. <laughs> so I'm I'm gonna turn to the second oldest fart in the <laughs> in the in the podcast. Jonathan J.M. Rowe, our humble producer. What are the kids listening to now? Well, I don't know if the kids are necessarily listening to Have this. Have you heard of Dojo Cat? <laughs> I've not heard of Dojo. I've heard the name, but I have absolutely no idea what he, she, she. they sing. She why are you so into pronouns, man? Just let it be. Um, the album I'm going to recommend uh, is by a guy named Jim Halfpenny. He has he's a songwriter. He originally is from California. He moved out here to Texas and lived in the Dripping Spring area uh, for I guess about 15 years or so. And he uh, put out a couple of albums, and uh, he hasn't put out an album in a while. But the album that just came out is called uh, Tabula Rasa, and it's uh, got some great songs on it. He is really a, a great songwriter, um, and he also 
plays almost all the instruments on it on the album so it, it's you, you can he's a very good guitar player but he's also kind of shows he plays some great bass as well on it um <laughs> I, I was just thinking how funny it'd be if someone put out an album called tablo ross and you put it in and there's nothing on it no words. <laughs> it's just completely <laughs> silent <laughs> Uh, some standout songs on it. Um, it's kind of a folk song he's got called Homegrown Tomatoes. Another one um, is Thin Brimmed Hat. That's a uh, kind of an homage to a just hanging out with your friends. And then probably my favorite is uh, King of Avalon. Really, really good song. Uh, very uh, kind of sounds almost boardwalky. It's it's really good. Um, boardwalky, so like uh, uh, like a, it's, it's just it gives you the feeling that you're walking down the oh, okay. boardwalk and it's a beautiful day and there's you know you're on the you know you're yeah. out on the boardwalk. Okay, sorry. Um, so, I had the same question, Tony. <laughs> I don't have boardwalky in my thesaurus. <laughs> Anyway, it's a uh, it's available from his website, but you can also get it on uh, Amazon. So highly recommended. He's living out in Arizona now. Well, thanks for listening to tonight's episode. We're on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Oh yeah, and be sure and check out our new set website at www.tappingvinyl.com. You can. Uh, get all the episodes, find out some more information, uh, listen to uh, songs that we've recommended, and you can leave your comments there as well. Next week, we'll be looking at a monster album that came out in 1977, Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, this is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, you're a ghost. La, 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 la.